0: Hey, it's Adam here, and I want to tell you where you can get more free sex and how you can support the podcast. I'm building a kind of hub for the project on Substack. It's just freesex.substack.com. I'm publishing transcripts for all episodes there for free and occasional writings about free sex for subscribers only. Plus, you can interact with me and stuff like that. To make this podcast, I'm relying on contributions from listeners. My indie podcast company, Aunt Nell, has invested in getting it going, and I'm paying my guests, but the only way I can fund it from now is with support from people like you, who subscribe at freesex.substack.com. Or you can just continue listening to the podcast for free and using the transcripts on the Substack if you need them. Thanks for joining me as we edge ever closer to a world of free sex. What does free sex mean to you? Do you ever think you'd have more sex? Or better sex? If only you could change one thing. What is that thing? I'm Adam Smith, a writer, podcast producer, walker, talker, thinker, wanker. (laughs) I started having sex at 29. 29 and i've been obsessed ever since now i'm on a mission to find out how as a society we hold each other back in sex what could a world of free sex look like for me free sex is a world with more places to fuck and without sexually transmitted infections how about you what are you into Every episode, I speak to a different human with a unique idea for what free sex could mean. This podcast is fully pansexual and gender fluid. From mild to wild, everyone is welcome. Let's go. Why are South Asian people in the UK getting more sexually transmitted infections? My guest this episode is Dr. Raghashree Darawan. In treating her patients in HIV and sexual health in East London, in the UK, Raghashree noticed that STI diagnoses in South Asian people here were growing and that they have less knowledge of HIV than others do. When Raghashree researched what was going on, she was shocked to find that doctors have known about these ethnic inequalities in sexual health since the 1950s. Why hasn't this disparity been fixed? This is such an important question if we're going to reach a world of free sex. So I'm grateful to Raghashree for explaining her research to me and sharing her proposals. Doctor's Clinic is open. Raghashree Deirawan, thank you very much for coming on to free sex and joining me today
1: <laughs> oh thanks so much for the invite i'm delighted to be here
0: <laughs> and as you know my question i've got to ask you this it's so great to have a, a doctor on the show so um and a doctor of sexual health what does free sex mean to you
1: so it's really about people being able to enjoy consensual sex with who they want in the way they want having sex that's free of shame and with access to the full information they need to make healthy decisions about their sex lives
0: Wow. Okay, this is, this is a lot to go into. Um, I'm loving this. So yeah, free of shame, access to services, um, information that they need. So um, d- just tell me a little bit more about how you've come to this understanding of what we need in order to build a free sex world through your work as a sexual health doctor and researcher.
1: So I've been working in this field for about 15 years and actually all of my career has been in East London, which is, as you know, is an incredibly diverse area in lots of ways, but particularly around different Mm -hmm. ethnic groups. So I've really had the privilege of meeting people from different communities and trying to understand um, kind of factors behind their sexual health. And I think things that always come to me are a lack of knowledge. So often, for example, we'll see young people in clinic and the consultation will be about really talking to them about what's normal about their bodies, what's not normal, talking about relationships in terms of what's healthy and not. And it really got me thinking about um, the lack of information that we give to our young people and actually adults as well as they get older about sex and and how to have good sexual health. And I think particularly working in East London with different ethnic minority groups, I've become really aware around the ethnic inequalities and sexual health that are apparent in the UK. And that's been a real focus of kind of my research and advocacy over the years.
0: Right. And when you say that you've experienced so many people that come into the clinic and it's clear that they haven't received very much information about uh, their, their own bodies and about sexual health, that's to do with sex education and sex and relationships education at school being deficient, right? Can you say a bit more about that and how that comes up?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think it has evolved over the years and it's certainly improved to what it was. Certainly back in my day, I don't really remember getting much apart from learning about periods and different organs. <laughs> and we were divided yeah. up into girls and boys. I remember all of that. I think it's definitely improved since then, um, but it's still not mandatory. We know that parents can take their kids out of school um mm-hmm. out of those lessons and we also know that perhaps um we could still improve it with regards to whether it's culturally appropriate thinking about different groups in particular or whether we should just have a, a blanket approach to it I think there's lots of nuances which could be improved um and you know my worry is that there is a slight pushback against sex education in schools um, and I think that's something yeah. that we really need to advocate against because um, we really see you know the out the serious outcome sometimes of people not receiving that education so for example I've seen over the years people being diagnosed with HIV and just not having knowledge about how HIV is passed on or let alone how to prevent it so you know we probably don't put sexual health top of our list when it comes to health and health education but you know it it can have serious consequences on physical health and and mental health as well.
0: So if you had the Ear of the education minister and other people making education policy, and you were, you know, coming in as a, as a health person and a sexual health person in order to uh, eventually reach that goal of having that world of free sex that you're talking about, where people have information and um, education about that helps them to make their choices. If you were advising education policy makers, what would you, what would be the, you know, the three or four? things that you definitely think that they need to be including
1: so I think they really need to talk to different communities around the country and yeah. um, first of all to talk to them you know what do you know of Uh, what what this sexual, um, you know, sex and relationship education is. So try and bust some myths about what they think it involves. Ask them, you know, what do you think is needed? And then work with the specialists in the area who are already making really great resources to get it into schools, Mm. to train teachers, to feel comfortable to have those um, sessions. And then I would say to make it mandatory so that every child Mm. has access to it.
0: Because there is mandatory sex and relationship education now As of a few years ago, somewhat, but it's not really complete. Do you know much about that? About you know, how mandatory it is, really.
1: So I think you can still um, take your children out of it. To my knowledge,
0: okay, yeah. So that's the thing for you, right? That's well, one of the things. Yeah. Let's talk more about where you practice. Then in East London, you said at the top, it is a very uh, mixed, diverse. uh, part of London and part of the UK. So um, before we go into h- how uh, s- sexual health kind of um, um, <laughs> makes its appearance there in that, just can you just, for people who don't know East London or even London that well, you know, because, you know, people might be listening in the Philippines, um, just uh, tell me a bit more about what East London is like in terms of the people that live there.
1: So... Um, East London is a very urban area. Um, It's traditionally kind of been the area where migrants came to England um, because it's where the kind of where the River Thames is. So ships used to dock there. So traditionally, it's an area of migration. And over the centuries, there have been different waves of migrants. Um, And because of that, kind of East London and the surrounding areas are very diverse when it comes to people from different ethnic groups. There's a lot of inequality when it comes to kind of socioeconomic status. So we do see a lot of poverty for example, one of the boroughs has the highest rates of child poverty in the UK. Um, and it's also very diverse when it comes to kind of religion. Um, but it's also a fantastic place to live and work because I think all the different cultures <laughs> yeah. mixing makes it um, an exciting place to live. And, you know, often a very cohesive community.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, it's just so... Um it's, it's one of my favorite parts of London. Uh, and it's also for me, it's also the, the place where there's a lot of, uh, queer culture as well and queer community. Um, and that's like super important for my, uh, for, for my life and, and some of my loved ones as well. So it's just got all these different, uh, layers to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so tell me a bit more about the work then, um, in you know your day-to-day life as a as a doctor seeing people from these different communities that live in East London and how they um they they present
1: so, to you as a um, doctor so I've seen them in, in a couple of ways so in sexual health clinics and also in my HIV clinics and on the HIV wards I think I was it was kind of first highlighted to me during my work on the wards and kind of seeing Unfortunately, we still see people who have quite advanced HIV disease, often because they've not tested until um, the disease has become quite advanced. So they've missed opportunities to have an HIV test before. No one's sort of offering it to them or um, because of lots of reasons they've been unable to stay in care, accessing their HIV clinic, aren't on treatment And the disease has become more advanced. So we still unfortunately do still see people like that on the wards. And I I started to notice that a lot of them were from ethnic minority communities. So black and brown people. Um, So that's one way in which I started to notice there were some ethnic inequalities, um, which led on to me kind of doing research on that. Um, and I guess in the sexual health clinics, it kind of reflects um, just the local local population. So where I work, for example, there's a very um, large Bangladeshi community. So we'd be seeing people um, from Bangladeshi communities coming in um, and uh, other populations as well.
0: Yeah. OK. So t- tell me a bit more about noticing those inequalities in HIV, first of all, uh, and what research questions that raised for you that you then looked into.
1: So I don't think um, we ever talked much about ethnic inequalities in HIV in the UK. Um, I think we've always done pretty well with HIV treatment because we have the NHS. HIV testing is free um, and <laughs> HIV prevention Um, Pre-exposure prophylaxis is free and treatment is free. Um, But what I did was I approached some colleagues um, who run a big national study where they've collected data from HIV clinics from all around England for the last 17 years. And we actually um, looked at data from that and we found that people from some ethnic groups um, were more likely to be diagnosed at a more advanced stage of HIV. So missing the chance to have an earlier HIV test. And then once mm-hmm. they were in care, they were less likely to be um, spending time in clinics. So they found it harder to access clinic consistently um, mm-hmm. and also found it harder to take treatment. And this kind of thing around late diagnosis, not being able to take treatment, not being able to attend clinic is really important when it comes to your health of HIV. Um, HIV is now a very, very treatable condition and you can live mm-hmm. as long as everyone else. Um, you can have a family if you're on treatment and um, it's effective you won't pass on HIV to anybody else Um, but it's really about getting tested early and staying on treatment throughout your life which is not easy and if you find it hard to do so it means that you're more likely to get unwell and to unfortunately to die from HIV and we know that if someone has been diagnosed with what we call late diagnosis so when the disease has become advanced and had kind Mm -hmm. of opportunity to damage the immune system, that your chance of dying within the first year is 10 times higher. So early diagnosis is really important. um, And we are seeing those ethnic inequalities when it comes to HIV in this country.
0: And I think that this is something that not a lot of people know about right because the, the 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 overall story that we tell of hiv in the uk at the minute uh, and probably other rich countries as well is that you know this was a, a horrible pandemic that started in the early 80s and went through the 90s and then at the end of the 90s drugs came in which helped people to control it more um and you know extended life uh for, you know for, for everyone living with it uh and and you know, all the way up to in recent years now, there's like you, meant, you mentioned PrEP, which is a drug that you can take to um, uh, stop transmission, um, which is a drug that I take. Um, so if I'm having sex that has a risk of HIV, then um, it means that uh, I, wouldn't, um, be in, I wouldn't be infected with it, um, you know, all of that. And so now it's it's this manageable thing and it's kind of gone away from the public consciousness. Even the stories that we tell now about it are still stories that are about the 80s you know with you know like it's a sin and stuff and so there's this thing that it's there's this general idea that it's that it's gone away um it's, it's certainly gone out of the of the national story and yet as you've said it's 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 still there um and uh it's still affecting certain communities and these are communities which are otherwise also marginalized and their stories aren't being told um so it's 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 multi you know complex factors like you've described but um it's I think it's uh, something that needs to continue to be talked about
1: yeah absolutely and I think the other thing that I noticed was um in East London um we probably have more kind of heterosexual people with HIV than some other clinics in London which may have more gay and bisexual yeah. men um yeah. and Um, I started to see a lot of women living with HIV um, and kind of noticed again, a lot of them were women of colour. And actually um, when we look at the who has HIV in the UK, about a third are women and 80% of them are women of colour. About 60% are black Africans. So again, most women living with Mm -hmm. HIV not only experience kind of sexism but they also experience may experience racism as well so really thinking intersectionally about the different barriers to good health and, and everything else in life
0: um, yeah yeah and you know because it's one of the reasons why so much of the um, uh, the 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 way that HIV is controllable and manageable now uh, and how the the size of the problem seem to have diminished well it has diminished. Um, is because of so much work from like largely, I would say like LGBT community, you know, getting organized in the 80s and the 90s um, and specifically getting the right messages to gay men or men who had sex with men uh, at the right time through nightclubs and saunas and community and so on. And and that's obviously been hugely valuable. Um, but there's something, there's something gone wrong here where, you know, that particular group has been receiving those messages and there's been organization around getting those messages to that particular group but not to these other groups um and it's hard to put that down to anything other than structural inequalities like classism economics racism uh yeah, sorry, that's not really a question. It's just <laughs> that's where no. we
1: are. I mean, I can respond to that. I mean, I mean, thank goodness that those, yeah. you know, all these um gay and bisexual men, LGBTQ communities did that work though, because we wouldn't, you know, have the treatment to this day if people weren't agitating yeah. for treatment and services. Um but yeah. yeah, as you said, I think, you know, there are goals to kind of end HIV across the world um as an epidemic. So UNAIDS want to do this by twenty thirty, which is an ambitious goal. Um, so it's really, you know, learning the lessons and thinking about what can we do with these other groups that hasn't worked so far. Um, and for me, kind of when we think about ethnic inequality, so just this year, the HIV stats for last year were just published. So um, okay. for 2022. And um, it did show, you know, it's brilliant HIV diagnoses are going down in lots of groups and particularly amongst gay and bisexual. Many have sex with men. It's going down, but not a, amongst um. Ethnic minority gain, bisexual men, it's actually going up in some groups. So that I think that does show that we're really not getting the messages or prep out to everybody. Um, and when it comes to sexual health generally, so outside of HIV, actually, mm-hmm. we've seen ethnic inequalities for quite a long time. And, and I started to do kind of more research and teaching about this. I was really horrified to find out we first started noticing um, ethnic inequalities in rates of gonorrhea and syphilis in in the UK in the 1950s. And then kind of year on year, we just record the same thing, some groups, so particularly, for example, some black groups like black caribbean groups for example have got the highest rates of some stis like gonorrhea and syphilis but we're just measuring that and nothing has changed in 70 years which i find really shocking Mm -hmm. um there's a lack of research into understanding why there's a lack of research into understanding what we can do to reach those communities and improve their sexual Mm -hmm. health Um, And I think it is related to, unfortunately, to lots of structural factors like um, structural racism, bias within our sexual health services, not providing culturally appropriate services. And there's a lot of research out there to show, um, you know, uh, so, you know, some people, particularly some um, black communities, access sexual health services and don't come back because um, they've had a bad experience. They've been stereotyped, for example. And because of that, they don't right. come back. They don't trust us anymore. So I think there's so much work that we can do. Um, but I think the framing has also not been great in the past. Um And it's not just around sexual health. I think it's around ethnic inequalities in general in that it's a victim blaming attitude. So it's either that these black and brown people have got a deficiency in their bodies. So it's something about their bodies that are not as strong and that's why they are more likely to get health conditions. Or it's due to their culture. So in sexual health, it's because they may have be culturally more likely to have more sexual partners or not to use condoms. But I think that is a very victim blaming approach, and I think that framing needs to change. And I think it has started to change. I think people are actually putting in the resources now to understand what we can do and to work with communities around what works for them. So you know, I'm, I am hopeful of change, and things have definitely changed a lot in the last couple of years.
0: So thinking about getting to that world of free sex where everyone has the information that's right for them and at the right time and in the right place um, and, uh, you know, all of these, all, all, you know, all of those intentions that you're talking about there, what does a good campaign message look like, either one that you would, would dream of existing or one that actually does exist right now, you know, within a community group or a campaign or something like that that um, is a good a- example
1: so um, I'm going to talk to you about a past campaign. Um, so it was okay. a campaign called Show Lay Love, um, which was run by um, the charity NAS, which is a, a London-based charity, which is about yeah. sexual health of ethnic minorities. Um, so this was specifically thinking about um, South Asian gay and bisexual men and how to reach them with regards to kind of HIV prevention and sexual health. So um this was like a mixture of posters and groups and different ways of reaching into the community, um, which I think was effective. But unfortunately, like a lot of um, campaigns, once the funding ran out, it had to stop. So it wasn't like a long running thing. And I think that is generally an issue. Um, But I I actually don't know. I think we have to go into different communities, not assume that, you know, one size fits all. Think about, talk to them about what would work for you and different people, members of your community um, yeah. and how can we do it in a way that doesn't stereotype you as well i think that's really important
0: and it's just shocking to me that this is not work that's happening or happening on a long consistent basis you know that NAS campaign that you mentioned that you know that was not and that's not the nhs it's not public it's a charity campaign that's that's done that off its own back but then it reached the end of its funding and that was that um and then what about the campaigns that have gone to heterosexual black women that you mentioned and said, OK, what information do you need? You know, it, it's hard to see who's taking the responsibility for this and doing that in a long term, consistent way
1: So I think um, just to say with that campaign, there was some funding there from what was Public Health England is now the UK Health Security Agency. But as I said, these kind of funding um, streams tend to be time limited. So you can do some really great stuff and say, look, this has worked really well. But where you find that more long-term funding from the government is much harder, I think.
0: Yeah. Is there, um, and I... uh, Appreciate that we didn't talk about this before. So I'm putting you on the spot, but just tell me if you don't know or you want to refer me. But um, is there a tension between... Um, central government like NHS and UK um, health security agency and and local governments, councils and local NHS trusts over um, whose job it is to do this and who wants to be seen to be uh, putting money into into sexual health, knowing that that might not be the most popular thing politically um, for, for for those for those bodies to do it. is there is there a is there a fight going on?
1: such a great question. <laughs> i'll try to I'll try to answer it. um yeah, it's probably
0: complicated, right? so tell me
1: so I think it was in twenty twelve um the Tory and lived in government at the time um, did a big reorganisation of the NHS. Um, and they basically put some NHS services into the local authority. So local councils were responsible for them. So that includes public health duties, like health promotion, but they also put sexual health in. Okay. And for the first few years, I think the sexual health budget was protected, it was ring fenced. So councils had to put a certain amount of money in. But then that stopped. Um, and obviously councils have to pay for so many things and they also pay for social care so I think sexual health perhaps has not had the funding that is needed for quite a few years now Um, and that's made things very complicated it's also funded in a different way to HIV which is um, complicated because often the staff delivering the services are the same Um, and the other thing about sexual health is that you know, as a society, we're just not very good at talking about sexual health because it contains the word sex. Um, and I'd love to say that investing in sexual health is sexy, but it's not. And I wish it was. <laughs> um,
0: yeah.
1: And I think as a country, we're slightly better about, you know, talking about other more um, difficult aspects of health, like mental health, for example. I mean, I don't know if you agree, yeah. but I feel like there has been a bit of a push to talk about mental health, but I think we're not yeah, there with huge. sexual health yet. Yeah. Um, so we need to make that sexy. Yeah, the-
0: yeah that I think that's a really good comparison because you know I'm 38 and I you know I I have lived in an era where mental health has become a term and then had a huge push behind it um politically uh, e- economically even um uh, uh, culturally artistically uh, you know there's and also in the private sector you know or companies and organizations caring about mental health um in parentheses they may only care because they want you to be a productive worker <laughs> but um uh but you know there's been this huge push for mental health and uh, it's it feels like there's a rubicon crossed there you know there's kind of a, there's no going back um now we all know much more about mental health and it's not to say that the, you know service provision is at the level that we would all like to see it at but And so much more awareness and people caring about it. And there has not been an equivalent Rubicon crossing for sexual health. It's still something that some people who don't access sexual health services don't even think about and don't even know about and would even say to you like, oh, well, that's not really important, is it?
1: yeah and i think the the crossover between sexual health and mental health is huge so you know yeah. um people can feel a lot of shame for example around the sex they're having or their sexuality sadly and that has a huge impact yeah. on their mental health and vice versa so you know they need to be tackled together i think
0: yeah i'm curious to um know from your time uh you know as um training to be a doctor and, uh, you know, going, going through the training and then every, anything prior to, to training, like when you were thinking about what field you were going to go into. Um, this is not a, um, a huge length of time because you're um, still, I think, you know, relatively early in your career, but uh, well, please, you know, tell me how many years, because I, I don't know, <laughs> I'm just guessing there. But um, what's that been like? How many years has that been? And how has the shame and stigma uh, conversation in your experience changed or not in that time?
1: So, um, so I, it's my 20th year of being a doctor. So thank you for saying oh, wow. I'm in my early thank bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> wow. So I, I went into the field because I think one, um, I had a mum who used to do, she's a GP and um, we mm. grew up in kind of suburban Essex and she used to also yeah. do family planning clinics. So she was very interested in contraception. Um, so she yeah. did a lot of women's health things. So I was always very kind of passionate about abortion rights as a medical student and um, mm-hmm. And I kind of fell a little bit into sexual health the year I kind of had to choose what I wanted to do. There were a lot of sexual health jobs that had come up and um, I sat in on some clinics um, at the hospital. I was working at the time and just thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then I got my first job in East London. And I couldn't ask for like, a, you know, a better place to do this in terms of the variety of people I met and worked with and. Um, I'm not sure things have massively changed. Maybe they have a bit. Um, I think in many ways, I think sexual health is slightly more known about. I feel we are, we have, there in society, there are slightly less taboos around talking about sex. And I think, yeah. you know, there's been lots of work in, in in general media around things like that. And when I think particularly, you know, about me coming from the South Asian community, um, so, although my mom was doing family planning clinics as a child, she never really talked about sexual health. So, I don't think we ne- ever really had that talk. Mm. Even though I knew right. she, she she worked in a family planning clinic, so big taboos around talking about sex as a child. And um, but I think things have changed a little bit. Um, so, if I was again just to talk with regards to South Asian communities, um, you know, there's great podcasts. There's Brown Girls Do It Too, which I don't know if <laughs> yeah. you've seen, but it all listened to, but it's yes. hilarious and it really, you know bus myths and taboos around sex in a really great way there's yeah. definitely more than there was when I was growing up so I think you know I think if people are talking more about sex and sexuality hopefully that will then move on to sexual health as well
0: yeah yeah I guess that's the that's the aim isn't it just to continue expanding that um uh, we when we were talking about research earlier I think we were talking about we were talking about HIV and we were also talking uh, about the like the, that longitudinal data of um, health inequalities of, of uh, diagnoses and, and treatment. Is there other research that you want to talk about that you've been doing that has particular insights uh, and work that you're doing at the moment?
1: So I've just done a, a study um, looking at kind of STI, so sexually transmitted infections amongst South Asian communities in, in England. Yeah. Um, so this was a project I was lucky to do as part of a master's. I took some time out and, and did a master's and this was done in collaboration with the UKHSA. Um, so um, using data that they collect from every sexual health clinic in England, we look specifically at data amongst South Asian people and I just wanted to look at um, diagnoses of bacterial STI, so specifically syphilis, gonorrhea and chlamydia, and to look at them amongst South Asians and to look at who were more likely to get them, um, just to look at factors associated with them essentially. Um, and we did this for the data in 2019. And the reason I did this is just there's a real lack of research about South Asians and sexual health in the UK. And I think There's lots of reasons for that. Um, South Asians are the the largest ethnic minority group in the UK, but they've always had the lowest rate of of STIs and they're least Mm -hmm. likely to use sexual health services. So I think people have always thought, well, they're not a priority to look at because they've got such low STI rates. Um, Mm -hmm. And people have also thought perhaps, you know, there might be some barriers there in terms of cultural sensitivities around doing the research as well. But uh, recent data has shown there's been a bit of a change. So, for example, we've been seeing increasing diagnoses of gonorrhoea and chlamydia amongst South Asian gay and bisexual men of sex and men. So something is changing. Um, Mm -hmm. We're seeing late HIV diagnosis, and there was a big kind of public knowledge of HIV survey done by the National AIDS Trust that found that specifically Mm -hmm. South Asians had low levels of knowledge around HIV and HIV prevention. Um, Mm -hmm. So just thinking about what is going on in that group and um, that's why we decided to do the work and I don't think our results were particularly surprising it um, kind of chimed in with the results that we see nationally in terms of the people who are m- most likely to get uh, chlamydia gonorrhea and syphilis tend to be gay and bisexual men have sex with men young people um, so those um, people who live in poverty; those are the kind of things that we know about. It's just it's never been shown that this is also the case in um, South Asian communities. But what it also showed is that as um, that South Asian communities are very heterogeneous, they're very diverse, um, mm-hmm. and the different groups are more likely to get STIs than others. Um, so although I don't think the results are groundbreaking in terms of what they show, they do ask a lot of questions and it makes us wonder, you know, why is it that South Asians don't use sexual health services? Why are they more comfortable perhaps going to their GP? What can we do to make them more accessible? And is are these low kind of STI rates uh, because there are a low number of STIs or is it actually there's a lot of unmet need? So we're not actually recognising that people do have poor sexual health because we, we're not recognizing it and then we're not meeting it so it kind of raises mm-hmm. the questions about what can we do really um and as with lots of research it means we need to do more research <laughs> and develop <Yeah>. policy development
0: <laughs> I mean it sounds like such important foundational work really like you said it's not it, that the headlines are not groundbreaking or surprising um, unfortunately you know e- e- even though they you know they're not going to be on the front page of a newspaper even though they should be in terms of raising attention I mean newspapers might not treat those results particularly well but um, you know in terms of you know raising attention they, sh- they you know they are really important results but like you said they're because they're not surprising um, actually that's still really important because it's then you've got that foundation from which to ask all the questions and go into it. Um, we haven't got that much um, longer. I wanted to ask you one of the the main questions that I'm just generally thinking about in, in making free sex, actually, which is about um, eradicating S- STIs. So, so I'm, this is a, you know, you got to understand, I'm coming from a sort of like futuristic sci-fi fan point of view here, where I say like quite, um, boldly, perhaps naively, like why can't we? Why why can't we eradicate all STIs? You know, we're on the journey to stopping transmission with HIV. When I say when I talk about eradication, some people seem to be like, "Oh, well, that's never going to happen, is it? That's crazy, or whatever." What do you think about when I just sort of like pull you out of these the spreadsheets for a minute and just kind of zoom up and say, like, "Can't we eradicate all of these things?" What, how how does that? What, how do you respond to that? <laughs>
1: Well, I think someone a few years ago said let's try and eliminate HIV and that is something we're trying to do. It's seen as a a doable goal and because we have these ambitious goals, loads of resource and work has been put into it, so why can't we say the same about STIs? Um, Yeah. You know, I think if perhaps if we even made that as a goal, we we would kind of focus minds and research and money and policy. Um, And I think there's lots of things that would need to be done for for that to happen. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I think it's a goal that we should aim for. Why not?
0: Yeah. And finally, what did your mum think about you going into sexual health as a practice with from her background in family planning?
1: <laughs> I think she's really proud. Yeah, I hope so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet she is. I bet she is. OK, yeah. Um, uh, Ragashri, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today and delve into all of these interesting things. And also, just um, thank you so much for your work and your care for us all.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. Let me know what you think of free sex, the idea, or the podcast. Leave me a review and a star rating if you can. On social media, I'm at Adam Smith. Yes, that's Smith, but with a Z or a Z. Yeah, Smith. Mm. (laughs) It feels good in the mouth. (laughs) You can find more Aunt Nell productions on our website, auntnell.com, and on social, we're at auntnell underscore. The theme music is Trans Life by Othon, hosted, produced, and edited by Adam Smith, and the executive producer for Aunt Nell is Tash Walker. All you loves and lovers, good night.